All of us at Epcot Center are glad to... It doesn't... Tumble McGay! You are not the first to pass this... Epcot Center is proud to present over the World Showcase Lagoon. Surprise in the sky. What's that? I can't hear you, Mickey! Here in Raiders of the Lost Ark, amid a thousand deadly snakes, Indiana Jones unearths a great treasure. Will Harrison Ford escape with his discovery? And what will be your fate? Beware. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Whoa. The trivia of 3,000 years rests undisturbed in the WDW radio podcast. And on the chest of the great Lou Mangello lies a priceless jewel. Wow, get a load of that chunk of ice. Come to Papa. Uh, my esteemed listeners, don't nobody move while I heist that jewel. I don't think they'd notice a few extra bodies around here if you know what I mean. But the jewel is guarded by a curse, and those who dare defy that curse must pay with their lives. Halt, unbeliever! Disturb the treasure of the gods, and you will all pay with your lives. <laughs> Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. Thanks for tuning in once again. This is show number six for the week of March 18th, 2007. I'm your host, Lou Mangello, author of the Walt Disney World Trivia Books and owner of DisneyWorldTrivia.com. This week's show is chock full of fun segments that I think you'll enjoy, as well as some special guests. As you see, it's going to run a little bit long, but based on your feedback recently, it seems that most of you enjoy the longer the better. This week, I'm joined by the voice of WDW Radio, Jonathan Dichter, for news and views from Walt Disney World, and we're going to talk about some special events taking place down at the parks, and we also visit the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill, where we discuss some more rumored rehabs for a few classic Walt Disney World attractions. We'll briefly touch on our training for the half marathon, as well as Jonathan's fundraising efforts for the Dream Team project. I promised you more trivia, and this week, Jeff Pepper and I take a look at another aspect of the Walt Disney World that never was, as we do another Disney scene investigation about a long-lost Disney character and his ties to the theme parks, Roger Rabbit. And finally, I get to announce and discuss the second of the seven wonders of Walt Disney World in a segment in which we're going to have a lot of history and trivia, as well as a discussion of the past, present, and future of this true wonder. As always, I want the show to continue to be interactive, so I'm going to answer a few of your emails before we end the show. Remember that you can be a part of the WDW Radio Show by sending in your suggestions, feedback, and comments via email, voicemail, or through the discussion forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. And before I end the show, I'm going to have some very exciting updates and information on the Trivia Cruise this November with me and Margaret Tinkerbell Carey, including a couple of surprise announcements for those of you who may be considering joining us on board. So, since we have so much to cover, sit back, 
relax, and join me on this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. And now, here's Lou Mangiello with news and views from Walt Disney World. This week, I wanted to welcome as a special guest a person whose voice I'm sure you know, and I, and I know you definitely love, and that is the voice of WDW Radio, the man, the myth, the legend, Jonathan Dichter. Jonathan, welcome, my friend. Aw, oh, shucks. Thanks, Lou. <laughs> I, uh, I'm happy to be here with you today, and I'll speak slowly so people can understand what I really sound like, <laughs> you know, accents and voices and all sorts of crazy things. All right, who am I kidding? I'm going to get crazy, but I don't know when. (laughs) I'm sure it'll happen soon enough. But obviously, uh, you know, I and I know many listeners really enjoy all the stuff that you've done for the show. Um, You are the the man who does all the great intros. And I thought it would be fun if you came on the show. And you you have many other dimensions other than just, you know, the the voice behind the the show. And uh, I thought maybe it'd be cool if you kind of joined me in the uh, news and rumors section this week, and maybe we'll do some emails and and who knows whatever else we... we Just because I'm trying to lose some weight doesn't mean you can talk about my dimensions, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? Let's start off real quick, because the the marathon uh, show was just a couple of weeks ago, and and I know I had mentioned during that show not only my efforts, but what you are doing. And I think your story is great, because you're not just... You know, training for a marathon. You're doing a whole lifestyle change, but more importantly, you're, you're doing something good with it. So go ahead and here's your your 15 seconds of fame. Oh wow! <laughs> um, yikes! No, uh, you know, it, it's actually it's all. I would say it's all your fault, but I think I'm just going to blame it on Dr. Scopa because um, he inspired you, <clears throat> and you had mentioned at one point that you were going to train for the 2008 half marathon down in uh, Walt Disney World and. I said, you know, it's, I've been trying to lose some weight for a while, and yeah, maybe maybe that's a good a good thing. And I, I had no idea; I didn't know anything about it, or started doing a little bit of research into the race, and said it's going to take me way more than twelve months to be ready for this. Uh, so I decided I would start training for the two thousand nine marathon. And then I said to myself, well, this is two years away, and I need something to help keep me on track. And being from the East Coast and from a, a decidedly ethnic family, nothing works better to motivate me than guilt. So <laughs> I decided to sort of guilt myself into it. I said, well, I need to make sure everybody knows what I'm doing, and I, and I can't let anybody down. So I started telling everybody. And then I said, I'm going to go a step further. And people started asking me if they could you know, help me out, sponsor me, if I was going to be you know, donating any money to anybody. And I said, all right, this could work. And so uh, for I started February of 07, and in February, uh, I lost 14.7 pounds wow. from the beginning. Um, and what's more impressive, in my opinion, is from friends and uh, actually people listening to the show, listeners, and, and just people in my, in my everyday life, uh, I generated almost just shy of $200 in sponsorships from February. And all of the proceeds that uh, people donate to me are going to be uh, given in 2009 at the half marathon in a very large. I'm going to get one of those big, giant, super cardboard checks <laughs> like they show on the lottery. Uh, and I'm going to present that to you, Mr. Mangello, for uh, the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team project. And it's my personal goal to have at least one family. 
uh, be sponsored solely on my dime. And if it ends up more than one family, fantastic. Uh, and as it, as it turns out, I think in February I was getting about 13 or $12 a pound. And already for March, I'm getting almost $20 a pound. Wow. Um, and I, I can announce as a, a spoiler for the people who read my blog, um, as of this morning when we recorded this, I've now passed the 20-pound mark. Good for you. Good so. for you. And, and I think what you're doing is great. Um, and the fact that you're raising money for the Dream Team Project. And again, just so you know, your your blog is voiceofmousetunes.blogspot.com. That's right. Voiceofmousetunes.blogspot.com. Now, the only issue that I have with this is that you now appear to have roped me into running the 2009 marathon as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Assuming yeah. I survived the 2008 marathon, which I'm yeah. not quite prepared well, for. But <laughs> And just to, just to clarify... Um, uh, not neither of us are going to run a marathon. We're both going to run a half marathon. Right, so together, right. we'll have <laughs> run right. one marathon. Um, and actually, for for your benefit, and I don't know if you've seen this, and people on the uh, DisneyWorldTrivia.com boards have been talking about the, the half marathons in training. This has inspired a lot of discussion. And I found a, a great website called uh, www.DisneyRunning.com. And in it, uh, a guy named Charles Waite wrote a report of last year's half marathon of mile by mile, exactly what he saw. And uh, there's actually a, a highlight video on this website of, of last year's half marathon. You won't need an iPod. There are people screaming. There's music. There's it, it's, it's almost an emotional video to watch if it's something that you think is beyond your reach. And then you stop and realize, I'm going to do this. And it's it's just really really cool, and it's it's become it's become almost obsession like for me, which is kind of a cool thing because that means I'm actually going to get there. Well, so I think that's awesome, and I think I think a bunch of other people have been motivated. So I have a feeling we're going to see some familiar faces um, as we pray and, and cross the finish line. Yes, in yes. 2009. So. And if none of us make it to the finish line, it was all Len Testa's idea. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so all right, Jonathan, let's. Um, Let's move on and let's actually get into some Walt Disney World news. And it's been a relatively slow week. There's really not a lot of news to report on. But uh, what there is really all kind of centers around a special, a certain theme, and that's special events. Uh, because the news I have to report has to do with pirates and princesses and Jedis, as well as Knights of Joy. And these are all special events at Walt Disney World. And this week, Disney released... Um, some details and some dates about these events that I just wanted to share with you. Um, the first is that, like I spoke about last week, the Pirate and Princess Party is definitely coming back, and it's going to come back for the busy summer season. And there's going to be uh, a number of nights in August, as well as one in September. You're going to have August 11th, 15th, 18th, 21st, 24th, 28th, and 31st, as well as September 3rd, and tickets are going to go on sale June 1st. So it seems that um, thanks to the great feedback from guests and the popularity of the event, they are going to bring it back and see how well it does in the summer. Um, when I do finally get to my recap show for my trip of Walt Disney World, I'm going to talk a little bit about the event and let you know how much I, as well as my whole family, enjoyed it. And I, I've heard nothing but good stuff about the uh, Pirates and Princess Party. I, unfortunately, I didn't get to attend being in the frozen tundra of Seattle. Um, but I, I have to say it's it's almost upsetting how much good press it's getting because that means it's going to return and become even more popular. And the most exciting thing was that there were so few people there to enjoy it, so you got to do everything. 
Next thing you know, it's going to be so crowded, nobody will be able to get to anywhere, and you get one little treasure chest, and you got to go home. And... Well, here, you know what, though? Here, here's the thing. Is I that never be- trick-or-treated as a child. I was, I was <laughs> left out of all those things. And it's just... I like the idea of getting to do things that are special. The Dr. Phil podcast is at <laughs> www. Uh, no, but the thing that's good about the Pirate and Princess Party is that it is not time-specific. It is not month-specific. So they can run it multiple times in the year. And I think if they were able to continue to do this, maybe, run it at the early part of the year and then run it again during the busy season, you're not going to have the same problems that maybe you do get on a Friday night during Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party where it is so crowded because they can, I mean, it really is spread out through the entire month of August. When, and I think even if the uh, if the model shows to, to be popular, uh, it could certainly open up other non-sort of holiday-specific type after-hours parties just around all sorts of different themes. And I think that's just, that's a great idea. I know. I, I, I agree with you. I like that idea. I like some of these kind of special events. I know some people don't because they feel as though, you know, to use other people's terms, they're being nickel and dimed, that they need to now pay an additional fee for, you know, an additional party or an addition uh, exclusive type event. I don't necessarily look at it that way. I think it's something fun. I love seeing the kids and adults get dressed up much as they were a couple of weeks ago at the Pirate and Princess Party. So um, I think it's a good thing, you know, as long as it's not overdone, as long as there's not, you know, a party going on all the times of the year. Uh, because for the people that don't go, they do close the parks early, and it is an added expense that maybe, you know, a child might be disappointed if a family just can't, you know, put that into their budget. The, the cost factor is why I'm actually a big proponent of charging as much as you can to your room key. That way you have absolutely no idea how much money you've actually spent until you leave. Uh, and then there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> exactly. Well, the other, the other special event that uh, additional details came about for this week is something that I'm sure you and I were both like to go to, and that is Star Wars Weekends. <laughs> Star Wars Weekends are back once again at the Disney MGM Studios, and the dates have come out. It is going to run for four weekends. Uh, the first weekend, you're going to have... In, it, now, it's going to run from June 1st through June 24th. First weekend, you're going to have Warwick Davis, who is Wicket, as well as Wicked. Kenny Baker, who is R2-D2. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, it, it looks like uh, weekend one is a short people's week. Yes. And <laughs> so actually, Warwick, I will be in Warwick, attendance. So. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and Warwick Davis also made an appearance in episode one as uh, the little baby Greedo Rodian that was Anakin's friend on Tatooine. Uh, see, I had a feeling you were a Star Wars geek, much like me. <laughs> no, no, I, I've never actually seen the movies. Never. <laughs> weekend two is uh, is cool character weekend in my eyes. You have Ray Park, who is Darth Maul, Darth Maul, and Daniel Logan, who is Boba Fett in Episode Two. Mm-hmm. Weekend three is uh, is Tall Guys Week because you have Jeremy Bullock, oh, who is and Boba Peter Fett, Peter Mayhew, obviously, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> and weekend four is C three PO, Anthony Daniels. And uh, Aunt Beru, Bonnie Piesi, and I'm sure I mauled that name, pardon the pun. I think that's young Aunt Beru, not old Aunt Beru. Right, right. But the thing that's cool about that, and, and I smell, you know, a Star Wars weekend's coverage show in, in our near future as we get closer, but there's great events going on. There's a Jedi, Jedi Training Academy. Um, obviously, there's Star Tours going on. There's Behind the Force, which kind of takes you behind the scenes of the films, the Padawan Mind 
challenge, hyperspace hoopla, and of course, tons of Star Wars characters. Again, we'll kind of go into this a little bit more as the event close it comes closer because I think it's a lot of fun and it's obviously very, very popular. I've actually just discovered what my Disney dream job is. Voice of the first free-roaming Yoda animatronic. <laughs> It's so funny you mentioned animatronics. Anyway, <laughs> the... Um, how fast pass do you need? <laughs> let's see, 14 minutes. I wanted to just time how long it took no. before the first voice came out. <laughs> and the uh, the third and final bit of news also has to do with another special event. And this is something that maybe a lot of people don't know about. And uh, September 7th and 8th in the Magic Kingdom is the 25th annual Night of Joy. And the Night of Joy is basically it's a, cel- it's a celebration of Christian music. It is also a hard-ticketed event, and it's a nighttime event that starts at 7.30. Tickets run for in advance at about $42 for one night or $72 for both nights. Tickets purchased on the day of the event are just a little bit higher. Uh, Night of Joy actually began back in 1983, and there's been a ton of different types of musical acts that have come, and it's really starting to become a very, very uh, popular event. And here, here's a did you know for, for this week's trivia show. And do you know that Night of Joy has played to a combined audience of more than 900,000 guests in the first 24 years? Wow, that's yeah. impressive. I didn't, even, I didn't even know that that existed. And uh, that's I, I continue to be amazed at the number of uh, special events that, that go on that have you know, almost nothing to do just with the parks that just Disney hosts. They're just incredible. Yeah, and that's why I kind of wanted to mention it because I think a lot of people maybe don't know because they don't get a lot of press. They don't get a lot of publicity, but they are fun events, and there is something really going on for everybody, no matter what your interest is, above and beyond just what's going on, you know, in the normal day-to-day stuff at the parks. Yeah, but, that, it's definitely cool. So, like I said, it was a, a short week, at least um, for when I'm recording. I'm sure tomorrow morning there will be tons of breaking news that won't make it into the show. But um, if you have any news that you want to talk about or if you want to comment on anything, you can send an email to lou at wdwradio.com. Call our voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. Or if you want to discuss anything we talked about on the show, by all means, go to the WDW Radio forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. And now, a trip to the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill. Jonathan is going to hang out and join me as we venture into the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill. And uh, again, not a lot of rumors to talk about this week. Um, Some of them we're kind of revisiting, some of which you may like, some of which you may not like. And I think the first one that we really need to touch on uh, is one that I mentioned, I believe, on last week's show. And it has to do with the Haunted Mansion, because it really looks like this is definitely going to take place. And it is going to take place during the very busy summer season, which begs the question, why are they doing this now, as opposed to why didn't they do it a little earlier, maybe this kind of slower time, January through March. Well, there's a very simple answer to that, Lou. They wanted to make sure it's done before we go down from Mouse Fest. Well, if they would have done it now, it would have been done before Mouse Fest. <laughs> well, I guess I, that's true. The only reason why I mention it is because for a lot of people I know that, that you know, when they do vacation, because of their kids' school schedules, uh, it does obviously take place during the summer. And for, pe- for people who go down and look forward to seeing what for many is their favorite attraction. I'm sure they're going to be disappointed that it's going down. But the question, you know, some of the questions that that I ask is there's a lot of conflicting stories about what is actually going to take place. Uh, Some people have said there was going to be widespread upgrades and rehabs that were going to be done. Now they're not going to um, 
to do everything because of, of financial constraints. They have talked about cutting uh, scenic and themed improvements, including uh, the addition of something for the graveyard. What that is, I don't know. There's also been talks about rebuilding the uh, queue area as well as the exit. And of course, we've talked earlier about the addition of a gift shop. What I, what they are saying is that the ballroom scene is going to get a, a very, not, not major facelift, but it's really going to get a lot of uh, visual improvements, much like what you saw over at Pirates of the Caribbean. You're going to see a lot of improvements with, with lighting. You're obviously going to have changes to the audio system and the doom buggies. Lighting systems throughout the rides are going to be upgraded. A lot of stuff is really going to be technical, some of which you may not see. But and uh, Johnny Depp is going to be at the organ. <laughs> I can assure you that... Um, Eddie Murphy will not be added to the attraction. So Darn. But whether we get the bride or the floating Leota head, I don't know. Again, you know, you're talking about a, a pretty lengthy refurb, so I have to assume they're going to do more than just, um, you know, some, some technical upgrades. Well, you know, I, I have to say, having been to the Haunted Mansion in March of 06 uh, on my honeymoon uh, on the East Coast, and then in August of last year going to the West Coast for my first Disneyland trip and visiting their Haunted Mansion. Um, Haunted Mansion's probably my favorite ride in the Magic Kingdom, and it just always has been. And if they're going to do half of the cool stuff that, that has been done in Disneyland, it's going to take, uh, in my opinion, the better Haunted Mansion, the Walt Disney World Haunted Mansion, really up a number of notches, and I, I just think it. I like it better on the outside. I mean, I, I can't disagree with some of the comments people have made that the sound system needs some work. The uh, speakers are crackling. I mean, it's it, it needs an overhaul. And and in terms of the timing on it, whenever is really a good time to take down one of the signature attractions. I, I get you know summer's not the best time in the world, but no matter when you take down something like the Haunted Mansion or Splash Mountain or Space Mountain you're going to have people who are there hoping to see it and not have it. Well, you know, and, and here, the uh, two of the other um, rumors I want to talk about are about attractions much like the Haunted Mansion, which are signature attractions that are loved by people that, again, for a long time have been rumored about going down. The first, again, is Space Mountain. Uh, there's been talk for a long time about the Walt Disney World version going down, getting improvements, again, much like Disneyland's. Again, uh, speculation now is that sometime in 2008, it very well may go down. Uh, allegedly, Disney has entered into an agreement with uh, Vikuma, who uh, created Rock and Roller Coaster, to perform some kind of upgrade to Space Mountain next year. Again, how much of it's going to be? Is it going to be a complete overhaul of the layout? Or are they going to upgrade just the ride system? Are we looking at new trains and audio system? What, if anything, is going to take place in the queue area? Again, it's one of these wait-and-see things, much like... The other attraction that's going to be now now is rumored to go down this fall, and that's the Jungle Cruise. And we've we've talked about this in the past, wondering if that is true. How much of a tie-in to the upcoming movie is there is is there going to be? Are they going to introduce characters like Timon and Pumbaa into the attraction? Uh, there's really not a lot of information going on out there, but because of the number of emails I received over the past week or two, I really thought I needed to mention it on the show. Now, is there? Do you know if is there any truth to the rumor at all that, in keeping with the current theme of Tomorrowland, when Space Mountain comes back up, it's actually going to be High School Musical: The Roller Coaster, <laughs> starring Stitch? <laughs> <laughs> 
So again, there, there's not a lot of new details. You know, again, the other, the, the final thing I had really was just there's been talk about the Disney Studios being renamed the Disney Pixar Studios uh, in conjunction with the opening of Toy Story Mania in 2008. Again, I, I just I mention it only because of the number of emails I had, but there is no kind of definitive information. Cast members that I spoke to really have no idea, um, you know, what's going on. You ask one, they'll tell you what's going to happen. You ask another, they say no, the name is not going to change. But if you have any information, by all means, please contact me via, you know, email, voicemail, or on the forums, and uh, let me know not only your thoughts, but if you have any kind of update to our rumors. And uh, as I hear more, I'll, of course, share it with you on the show. For this week's installment of DSI, Disney Scene Investigation, I welcome back to the show friend and blogger Jeff Pepper, who runs 2719hyperion.blogspot.com. Jeff, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. Glad to be back, Lou. Thanks for having me back. For this week's installment of DSI, we're going to talk about something or somebody a little bit different, and that is Roger Rabbit. Don't worry. Whatever you say, yes, ma'am, I like Okie dokie. And not just the character and the film, but more so his ties to the Walt Disney World theme parks. Because when the film hit theaters in 1988, it was a huge success for Disney, who, of course, knowing how to capitalize on that success, brought Roger into its theme parks in the United States very, very quickly. And when the studios opened just two years, about a year later, really, in May of 1989, Roger was still quite popular, thanks to some other shorts um, that had come out. And it seemed like it really was a perfect fit for the theme parks. And although we never really had a Roger Rabbit-specific attraction, you could see Roger and references to the movie all over the theme parks. But before we kind of get into the theme park aspect, Jeff, let's, let's step back a little bit. Let's talk about the movie, maybe how it came to be, how it was made, and kind of an interesting marriage that Disney had in order to make this happen. Well, let me just put forth right from the start, um, I love Roger Rabbit. I just, he was an epiphany when, when, he, when the movie came out in 88. I mean, uh, I was a, a closet animation fan back then, and it was at a time before the whole animation renaissance. And so um, that movie just was like the be-all and end-all for me at that time. And so everything you're going to see, hear me talk about now it's just gonna be like oh fanboy god you know but um yeah it 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 was just an amazing uh movie and it, it was a pretty much a pop culture phenomenon back in 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 88 uh it preceded well yeah if you put it in context it preceded little mermaid by a year and little mermaid's kind of what's considered to kind of cap off the whole disney resurgence and in, in feature animation and everything so it's a lot of people back then kind of even had kind of brought back the whole notion of animation. It actually made animation cool for, for adults again. And that was that was a big part of it because it was a more sophisticated film. It wasn't a kiddie film by any means, if you if you remember a lot of the content, especially, you know, Baby Herman. The whole thing stinks like yesterday's diapers. Not, no, not at all. And technology-wise, it was relatively groundbreaking, that, that reintroduction of the marriage between, you know, live acting and traditional animation. Yeah, it just... Um, Richard Williams was the animation director on it, and that combined, he was a pretty solid veteran of animation for quite a few years, and that combined with Bob Zemeckis, who um, at, at that point was kind of, you know, in his early days, he had done the Back to the Future movies and, and was kind of teaming up for a lot of stuff with Spielberg. So it, it was pulling a lot of good talent in, and then, you know, like I said, 
Spielberg was key to the whole, you know, development of the film with Disney. Um, it was kind of an interesting partnership, and uh, it's it just it broke a lot of ground, and it was hugely, hugely popular, especially internationally. Definitely, and obviously, with the uh, impending opening of the Disney MGM Studios, and it being such a groundbreaking film, like I said, it was a no-brainer to to bring Roger, who was very, very popular at the time, into the theme park. And let's kind of talk a little about what, you know, if, if this was 1989, what we would have seen when we walked in. Uh, and, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you got I mean, you got to really think that, you know, when, you know, when Roger came out in 88 and, 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 and you know, and, and MGM Studios was in under construction, I guess, you've got to think that there was just Imagineers that went, oh my God, <laughs> you know, gold mine. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I mean, because, you know, here you have a movie that is set in Hollywood and it's a very glamorized version of Hollywood in 1947, just very identical to what they were trying to create for Disney MGM Studios. And it was just, you could just see, I could just see their eyes lighting up when, you know, whatever executive walked in and said, hey, could we do something? <laughs> you know, <laughs> this, uh, you know, and yeah, I just, it, when I, I remember I visited like MGM within, I think the first two weeks of it opening up, I was fortunate enough to have a visit timed at that point and just walking in and Roger was everywhere, but not, oh, you know, not overpowering, but there were just elements of, of him all over the studio. It was just, it was amazing. And it wasn't, and you have to forgive my, my modern reference, it wasn't a stitch kind of overpowering where he was everywhere and it was almost too much. Uh, it was, he was there and he was present and, and really was almost being introduced not not as a, a, a next Mickey Mouse, but the next really big character for Disney. And there's pictures all over the place. And I have a lot of old cast member documents and, and Walt Disney World uh, guides and brochures that have, you know, Roger Rabbit, you know, right next to Mickey. I mean, that's how big they they really expected him to be. Yeah, and, and, and he was. I mean, they were, it was interesting because they certainly weren't pulling any punches. I mean, they were getting him, him out there. But it, like you said, like, in contrast to Stitch, it wasn't overwhelming by any means. And and what was beautiful about it was, like I said, especially at Disney MGM, it was just a perfect fit. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, you know, where there's like all these controversies today how, you know, this, you know, Monsters, Inc. doesn't fit in Tomorrowland or, you know, Nemo doesn't fit into Epcot. Well, Roger fit. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, Roger was a perfect fit for Disney MGM Studios. I mean, it was just brilliant. I mean, one of the first things I you see when you came into the park was the billboard for Maroon Cartoon Studios. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, I mean, you know, when you walked into MGM, you had you have all those billboards everywhere. You know, right. that are just vintage style billboards. You know, of the time period. And, you know, it was just a natural thing to look up and see maroon cartoons there. And it didn't look like an advertisement for Roger Rabbit. It looked like it was part of this Hollywood setting, that maroon studios exactly, yeah. was part of the, the MGM studios. Yeah, it was It was just It was just great. I mean, I, I, I just, you know, I, I felt like I was on a pilgrimage when I <laughs> when I loved MGM when it opened. I mean, right. it's I have so much nostalgia for the place, and, I, and a lot of that is attributable to just things like Roger Rabbit. Well, they did. I think they did a very nice job of integrating not only the character of Roger Rabbit, but elements of the film throughout the park. If you remember the old backstage studio tour, which which is actually very different than what it is today, uh, not just with the demolition of Residential Street, but there was a walking portion of the tour and there was a tram portion of the tour. You remember it actually used to, with the, magic, the entrance to the magic of Disney animation is now. That was the old entrance to the backstage studio tour. And you can find the old, the dip mobile was there, um, the trolley cars were there. A lot of the old cars that were used in the film, you could find on that part of the studio tour. 
Yeah, they you you boarded the trams and then you you rode the trams for the first portion, um, and I believe what was it when you were coming off of Residential Street or coming off of New York Street? I guess it was wherever towards the you they split the tour in half, and you you ended up you know getting off the trams and then doing a walking portion at that point, which is right. similar to where you go now into the the water tank and everything was a part of that. But it was there you had this intermission break and. Right at the end of the tram was where you saw the dip mobile, I believe, mm-hmm. and then you got off, and it was—it's where the uh, what's the restaurant, the Backlot Express, right? Uh, restaurant. No, uh, the um, where the Studio Catering Company is. Now. Yeah, I'm sorry, right. got it, got him confused. Um, the yeah, and then they had that whole area there that was like the Acme Gag factory, right. which was a combination kind of souvenir gift shop and sort of photo off place, and that was just filled with all the Roger Rabbit paraphernalia. <laughs> And there's still elements of that there. Um, yeah, when you come yeah, the, the ton of bricks is still there. Right. Um, and I think that's there's a couple things like that. But yeah, most of it's it's a very weird thing. I was taking a lot of pictures there the last time I was there, and I was I was kind of just deliberately looking for some of the old Acme stuff, and that's that's only a few things left. Yeah, because you're right. There was there, there was a lot of photo ops. There was like a uh, some uh, you could take a picture next to Jessica Rabbit. There was a a hole in the brick wall with uh, a kind of a cutout of Roger Rabbit. There was, uh, wasn't the steamroller back there? Yeah, the steamroller was there that actually runs over Judge Doom in the movie. Um, and that was like a photo op where you can lay underneath it. Um, yeah, and like you had all the crates, um, that were marked from the Acme Gag Factory, and each crate was interactive. You would open them up and they would have sound effects, um, for various things. And it was, it was a very, it was almost like I said, it was a combination sort of gift shop and sort of hands-on play zone. Right. And remember, too, back at this time, there really wasn't a lot of things to do at, at the Disney MGM Studios. That's part of the reason why the Backlot Tour was so long. I mean, it really was probably an, an hour, hour and a half kind of attraction if you did everything. But you also, there was other Roger Rabbit stuff you could do in and around the parks. Uh, over at Soundworks, at the Monster Sound Show, you could do stuff at the end in the... Um, in the Soundworks post-show. Yeah, you were dubbing Roger's voice. Uh, you, boy, I can only imagine how many bad impersonations of please, which I'm, of course, not going to do and embarrass myself, were done. I do uh, a pretty good one, but I don't, I don't know if I'm going to go into that. That's you know, your I've call. only been on the show a couple times, and I don't want to end my career so soon. So. <laughs> but, uh, you know, even though you know most of those things are, are gone now, there are still other little hidden treasures at, that I like to call and references to Roger Rabbit. Um, all around the Disney MGM Studios, and the one that comes to mind is above the entrance to the Hollywood and Vine, up in the windows. Yeah, mm-hmm. That is the um, Eddie Valiant's uh, offices, right? With the uh, with the uh, Roger Rabbit uh, cutout of him. Obviously, he went through the windows in the blind. <laughs> I, you know, again, and and I'll take a quick aside here to say this is why that when you're walking around the parks, you need to not just look in front of you, but you need to look up and you need to look down and you need to look around and pay attention because there's so many of these great things. And MGM is full with them, uh, much like the windows on Main Street. The windows in MGM um, have a lot of great little, you know, gags and things like that around there. Yeah, yeah, there's um, there's like little apartment for rent signs and things like that all along those type of areas. So. I, I see a future DSI talking about the, the MGM studios. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, you know, back when the studios were studios, and they say that because I, I do miss those days, uh, there were other things that you could see in and around the park. You actually got to see some of the costumes that they used um, and the, on the tram portion, I think, of the, um, of the backstage studio tour. And 
we, we talked briefly about they had uh, made three additional shorts after Roger Rabbit, and they were actually created at the at Feature Animation Florida. The first one, uh, Tummy Trouble, was the first one. It was actually done in California. And then the subsequent two, um, the second one was Roller Coaster Rabbit, and um, then Trail Mix-Up was the, the third and final one. Those were completely done at the studios. And that is, yeah, actually when you bring that up, one of my fondest, fondest memories of being down there, I think it was in 19, the early late part of 89, early part of 90, I'd, I'd done a, quite a few trips. I was at my heyday of going multiple times a year. I actually saw them working on Roller Coaster Rabbit. You know, when you went, you know, back again, when you had the thrill of actually watching animators in production there, um, I remember very distinctly on at least two trips seeing them working on Roller Coaster Rabbit, and, and that was just very, very exciting. And then, and, right, you, you talk, you took exactly what I was going to say, was that that's when you could, could actually see animators at work on, you know, feature films and shorts and things like that. Well, the, there's a cool thing there, too, is a um, little piece of trivia. In Tummy Trouble is, you know, was uh, set in the hospital, and there's a sequence in it where they get blown sky high or whatever. They're they're blown way high above the earth, and as they're coming back down, they're coming back down to the earth, and you you see them heading back down, and it's there's a map, and they're heading back towards California. Well, the interesting play on that then in Roller Coaster Rabbit, I don't know if you remember, is when they're riding the roller coaster, they go to a very like exaggerated hilltop you know, peak mm -hmm. on the roller coaster, and they get to the very top, and then it shows it just so, like, it's like they're practically in outer space, this thing's so high. They're looking back down, and the roller coaster is located in Florida, which basically paid homage to the fact that that's where they had made the film. Hmm. And it was just a neat little piece of, uh, you know, animators love throwing stuff like that in. Yeah, and and of I think course, it, was almost a, it was almost a tit for tat for the guys out in California doing the other, right. <laughs> the other ones. So. And of course, the original film is just filled with those kind of, you know, references and characters and you know. Oh my, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the Roger Rabbit is like the equivalent of, you know, a film theme park where you're, like, again, looking for all the details. Right. I mean, we have to stop and look at everything. <laughs> if so. kids today saw it, you know, especially in the end sequence when all the characters come out, uh, I'm sure most kids, you know, wouldn't be able to identify. You know, I, my daughter watched it, and when Betty Boop came on, she's like, who's that? I'm like, uh, <laughs> I don't even bother. Oh, God, <laughs> how old am I? <laughs> but, you know, we're talking about how popular the film was and how popular it was in the theme park so the, it begs the question why wasn't there something more why wasn't there an attraction well there was supposed to be there was supposed to be not just attraction but a lot more in that they were actually supposed to get entire land originally at the disney mgm studios and it was originally called uh, roger rabbit's hollywood or cartoon hollywood and it would have been located where Sunset Boulevard is now. It was supposed to open, you know, five to seven years probably after the studios opened. Yeah, it was a part of the Disney decade. The, uh, the sort of now infamous, you know, you know, they made all the big fanfare in 1990 of all the big promotions and additions they were going to be doing to the to all the parks. And a big part of that was um, was Roger Rabbit's Hollywood or Cartoon Hollywood. And yeah, uh, there was just some stuff. It is so bittersweet, <clears throat> excuse me, when you think about it, because they had a couple of attractions that just sounded like they would have been unbelievable. Um, the, the really cool attractions that they announced that is just, you know, I regret so much it not having been followed through on is the Toontown Trolley. And it was what there was going to be their answer to uh, Back to the Future. Uh, Back to the Future had come along, and it kind of won up the whole the simulator attractions like Star Tours and Body Wars. And it 
sounds like Imagineering was really keen on just going one step further and Toontown Trolley would have been that and it what it was is it would have been the simulator idea but instead of just having the front projector the front screen the whole thing would have surrounded you and it would have been basically Roger driving you on uh, Gus the bus through Hollywood and Toontown and just like the bus careening every which way and Roger actually slamming into the bus and the bus imprinting his you know his, his body and then actually springing back to place just a la any kind of cartoon and it just sounded like it would have been marvelous and sadly none of it ever happened uh, there was a there was also a couple dark rides that were being considered one was a kind of uh, it was a the baby Herman's baby buggy ride there we go. <laughs> um, it was gonna be kind of inspired by tummy trouble which would take you like on a dark ride careening through the hospital sets that were in that particular short and there was like the Benny the Cab ride that sort of ultimately evolved to what ended up in Disneyland, um, Toontown, and Tokyo. And uh, there was another variation. I think they had considered a variation on a similar dark ride with uh, Roller Coaster Rabbit. They were basically pulling all their inspiration from this. But they were going to actually have a whole, like you said, a whole area. There was going to be the Terminal Bar, which was one of the settings in the movie mm-hmm. uh, with the red car lines. And they were going to basically just create that as a whole restaurant, shopping area with shops that would just play totally to the Roger Rabbit Hollywood setting. And it, it ah, it's sad. <laughs> and, you <laughs> know, all choked up just thinking about this, it. <laughs> this, was not a, this was not a Blue Sky concert. I mean, this was really going to plan to be built. And there were actually promotional videos and commercials and stuff that was shown like on Disney Channel, you know, talking about yeah, uh, the impending yeah. arrivalists. I remember the... the uh, segment that was hosted by John Lithgow, and he talks about specifically the Toontown Trolley. This site is in the process of turning into Sunset Boulevard. The legendary Hollywood Theater District will feature the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. It'll drop you 13 stories straight down through the fifth dimension, right into your own episode of The Twilight Zone. Across the lot, you'll be able to take a wild trip on the Toontown Transit, a runaway bus that hurtles through the cartoon streets of Toontown. And And they showed concept art, and they showed all kinds of pictures of it. Uh, You know, so it really kind of, this was something that they were planning on on doing. And, you know, as as we get to the end of the segment, we'll talk maybe a little bit more about why this never actually took place. And it's interesting because a lot of that that was announced in 90 was crucial because, if you remember... The studios was like infinitely more successful than they ever imagined and they were drawing such huge crowds that expansion was just just mandated because they couldn't handle the capacity of the guests they were bringing in they had to basically get it bigger quicker and so they rolled out this they at the same time they were rolling out attractions that were going to be based on Dick Tracy the movie that came out in 1990 and so there were there was a big push for expansion and so much of it just never came to fruition yeah, you know, we get, you know, Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers. We don't get Toontown Trolley, which, <laughs> you know, and, and you're right. And, and, you know, maybe another conversation for another time is, is, you know, the Muppets were very big back then. And, you know, they were bringing game shows on board. They were filming Let's Make a Deal there. So there was a lot of stuff yeah, going on. Yeah. There, remember, there was no Sunset Boulevard. There, in fact, was no Mickey Avenue way back right. when. Um, so the, the studios back in 89 were a far cry from what you see today. But because of the popularity of Roger the character and the film, uh, his presence was not confined just to the studios. In fact, Disney made a very clear point about expanding Roger 
not only to the other theme parks, but all around Walt Disney World. If you remember at Pleasure Island, um, the Jessicas of Hollywood store and the sign, which eventually became the, the entrance sign, the, the big sign with Jessica and the... Um, and her leg that kind of went back and forth was originally... Oh, you're speaking of that very family-friendly lingerie shop? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I mentioned that on the show. People were like... Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but that's what it was. It was it was modeled yeah. after Fredericks of Hollywood, and it, and it was a... And a not, a, not an adult store, but it was it sold, you know, lingerie and undergarments and things like that, and, and it had this very seductive Jessica Rabbit sign. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way which eventually was moved and used at the entrance um, to Pleasure Island. Right. And it wasn't just there. They, of course, you know, it's a no-brainer bringing him over to the Magic Kingdom. Um, He was the Grand Marshal of the 20th anniversary celebration back in 1991. There was actually a a stage show that kind of toured the country, not only with Roger, um, but cast members who were dressed up in these very you know, 90s-looking Roger Rabbit outfits. Yeah. And they were kind of promoting that that surprise celebration that was going on at the parks. They, they took it, I mean, they literally took the show on the road, uh, not just via TV, but via, via these live appearances by Roger and, and actual cast members. Yeah, that was in 91 for the 20th anniversary, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. Yep. And uh, he was also in the, key, the, the Kids of the Kingdom show, which, in, which was the show that was in front of the castle at the time. Um, he appeared in the in the in a stage show over at Mickey Starland when he actually pulled um, audience members out and they gave him a special 20th anniversary uh, shirt. He was in Spectro, Spectro Magic in 1992. He was the conductor of the music section section over. But then, uh, and then sadly he sadly was, was replaced <laughs> by now. And now it's important to note who he was replaced by, and I'll touch on this later on. Do you know who replaced him as the conductor of that section? The genie. The genie from, from Aladdin. Aladdin. That's right. Yeah. So. You know, now, like you mentioned before, although we did not get um, a Roger Rabbit attraction, we should note that other theme parks around the world did. Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin opened in uh, Toontown in Disneyland in 2003, and then it also opened in Tokyo as well. So they got the attractions. Unfortunately, we didn't, even though I think MGM clearly was the right fit and we had the space. We got the name. You know, we got Toontown as in Toontown Fair. Which, you know, Toontown, the term Toontown came from, from the movie. But, you know, by the time they upgraded Starland and Birthday Land to Toontown Fair, there wasn't any Roger left. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But now, here, here's, your, uh, here's your trivia question for you. Name another place on property where you can find Roger Rabbit. Oh, come on. Lou. A big Roger Rabbit. A big Roger Rabbit. A very Rabbit. big Roger Rabbit, yes. <laughs> The Pop Century. That's right. Over in the <laughs> 80s section of Pop Century, there's this huge statue of Robert standing on a, uh, a turned-over bucket of turpentines. <laughs> which is which is somehow incredibly fitting because now he went totally to pure nostalgia. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, he's, he's in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. He, he is, you know, unfortunately a, a remnant of times past. And, you know, for a long time they had talked about a sequel to Roger Rabbit, which, you know... Never, never got made. And maybe this is the good time to talk about why, you know, what happened with Spielberg and why, um, you know, it seems like none of these things really may have taken place. Yeah, it's, it, it, there's a lot of weird history there. Um, that when you go back, you know, as I said earlier, Spielberg was key in getting Roger Rabbit made. And one of the 
the big factors he played in getting it made originally was he was the one that was able to bring all the other non-Disney animated characters into the movie. He was the one that, that was able to negotiate with the other studios. And, Which was amazing in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you're and, a fan of animation or of cartoons as a kid, especially that scene at the end and so many little segments in there, I mean, it's just, it's it's awesome. It's priceless. But it came. It's interesting. You can almost pinpoint where the fracture began, and it was it was primarily when we, we mentioned the um, the short subjects, the uh, roller coaster rabbit and tummy trouble. Um, that's where it began, and it, it kind of started in 1990 when roller coaster rabbit was um, made. There was two movies that were coming out, two Disney movies that were coming out that summer. One was Dick Tracy, and the other one was a little movie called Arachnophobia. I don't know if you remember the spider movie. Sure, yeah. Um, and this, that was made in partnership with Ambling Entertainment and Steven Spielberg. Well, that summer, you know, they were going to roll Roller Coaster Rabbit out. Well, Disney wanted Roller Coaster Rabbit in front of um, Dick Tracy. Spielberg wanted it partnered up with Arachnophobia. The reason being is when Tummy Trouble came out the year before, do you remember what movie it came out to the theaters with? Oh, uh, no, I have not It was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Oh, right, Which, okay. if, you, if you remember, in a very subtle way, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, when the Disney MGM Studios opened, it was featured throughout mm -hmm. a good portion of the attraction. you remember the bee? Sure. You know, riding the bee in the one uh, special effects sequence. Well, what they found was they, they really felt that when Tummy Trouble was partnered with that movie, it really dramatically increased the grosses. I mean, that the movie became a very, very big hit for Disney. And so there was this feeling that when you threw a Roger Rabbit cartoon in front of a movie, it was going to dramatically increase the grosses. And Spielberg wanted it in front of Arachnophobia, and, and Eisner and company said, nope, nope, we're putting it in front of Dick Tracy. And that small point was kind of what laid the groundwork for the eventual parting of the ways because it was a 50-50 split. Both of them own, equally owned the character and it was sort of like they both had a right to veto on anything and so it just for the next seven or eight years as different things went into development there was always just these points of contention as to you know whether you know anything was going to be developed and it's, it's funny in all my research I've never had heard anybody they, they talk a lot about how Spielberg vetoed different ideas for sequels for Roger Rabbit, that they—I've never heard anybody specifically say what happened to the theme park attractions. You know why Roger Rabbit's Hollywood just didn't come about. I—I've never seen a direct connection. Have you have read anything or? No, and it's funny because you know while I was looking for some of these things, I was looking for for something, and I said, okay, well maybe the land—you know—the entire land just was not feasible from a dollars and cents point of view, and I can completely understand that. But why wouldn't we get an attraction, especially if other theme parks around the world did? You know, again thinking that the studios was the perfect place for it. Right. Um, you know, why wouldn't they do it? Again, could it be all uh, the Eisner Spielberg, or, or could it be other things? And, and I'm going to kind of just kind of throw something out there for you, um, because I think it, it might not have just been that. Because if you remember, uh, not long after Roger Rabbit came out, like you said, a little, mo little movie called The Little Mermaid came out in 1989. And that was followed up by Beauty and the Beast in 1990 and Aladdin in 1991. And the reason why I mention those is because they were hugely, hugely popular and still still are. And they all had characters in there that were now being introduced to a new generation of people 
Um, so maybe people, you know, were, were a little more easy to forget about Roger Rabbit because they had Ariel now, because they had Aladdin and Jasmine, because they had Belle and the Beast and even some of the secondary category, cate- characters to fall in love with. Um, and that... Yeah, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right because I think that's they had a dearth then of just of material to draw from and if you if you're you know in their position where you know if you say hey let's do something with roger rabbit well you know well we gotta we gotta talk to some other folks about that first well okay never mind let's let's go back to let's go back to the genie mm-hmm. you know because you're right the genie all of a sudden you know ended up everywhere <laughs> well you know what it's it's kind of it's a little easier to forget about your ex-girlfriend when you have three other girlfriends waiting yeah. in the <laughs> It makes that transition a little bit, you know, and obviously, you know. Especially when your ex-girlfriend's mother is going, what time is he going to be here back, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, when you had to check in with, with the mother, Mrs. Mrs. Spielberg, you know, to, to everything that you needed to do, um, you know, and, and I'm going to tie this loosely to when Stitch came out, because unlike when Roger Rabbit came out and what followed Roger Rabbit with Little Mermaid, Beauty, and Aladdin, when, when Stitch came out, uh, I think part of the reason why he became so popular is because there really were no good characters for kids to latch on to, either before Stitch came out or after. If you think about it, before Stitch, you have things like Emperor's New Groove, Atlantis, um, not really anything there. And afterwards, you have Treasure Planet, which was a good movie but did not do very well, Brother Bear, Home on the Range. So for a number of years, the only character really that kids can kind of fall in love with, and maybe that's why he is where he is now, is was Stitch. Oh, absolutely. Speaking from a father of two young boys, <laughs> uh, Stitch is it. I mean, there's there's so you know there's such a fan backlash on Stitch, and I, I find it funny because you know there's so many people that are just they'll go on there how much they hate Stitch rampages. And I just look at my kids. Um, about two years ago, you know, my youngest son, who was seven then, Stitch was everything. I mean, every souvenir he purchased at Disney World, that trip was Stitch. And, it, and it's hard for, you know, you know, I, I'm looking at it from the standpoint of, oh, God, Stitch is everywhere. I had a kid who loved the fact that Stitch was everywhere, you know. And you're, you're right. It, he, it was the one, you know, it was interesting because I think Stitch, in a lot of ways, pulled a lot of kids away from Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network mm-hmm. stuff. You know, and brought them back into a kind of a Disney property. And, and you know, again, I, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but you know, for what's coming down the pike right now, I don't necessarily see another character that may take that attention from Stitch away. We have Meet the Robinsons coming out later on this month, uh, American Dog, Rapunzel, and the Frog Princess. Nothing in there is screaming to me, you know, replacement for Stitch. You know, especially right. mm-hmm. for boys and girls. You know, you may get a princess, you may get, you know, a um, somebody from Meet the Robinsons, but nobody really that that seems to jump out much the way some of those old. I mean, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin are, are just embraced for from every generation, boys and girls, mothers and fathers, grandparents, grandkids. Um, that's why they are still so timeless, and that's what we don't have now. But again, I, I've veered way off course on the uh, on the Roger Rabbit, but I just wanted to kind of throw my two cents in as, as to maybe why we don't see him now. Um, I still oh, think, yes, I still right, think the character it. works. I do. I think the character, my daughter just recently got turned on to Roger Rabbit, and she loved it. Yeah, I, I miss him. <laughs> <laughs> 
So little tears dropping from my eye right now. Yeah, and you know, I have a feeling, Jeff, that you're not the only one. I think a lot of people, especially um, in our generation, really um, like the movie on a number of levels, and they like the character of Roger Rabbit. Um, you know, the 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 film itself was a great film. It had a wonderful cast. I think Charles Fleischer did an awesome job, you know, creating the persona of Roger. But um, unfortunately, I have a feeling that we will probably not see him, at least in the way that we would like to, um, at the studios or anywhere else. Um, But I would love for other people to weigh in. Let us know what you think either about, you know, the movie or the film, uh, movie or the character or, um, you know, his his presence or lack thereof in the parks. Uh, send an email to lou at wdwradio.com. Call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW or by all means join in on the conversation over at the WDW Radio forums at disneyworldtrivia.com. Jeff, great job once again. Thanks for coming on and uh, talking a little bit of trivia, a little Roger Rabbit, and a little tangent um, with me again this week. Absolutely. It was my pleasure, Lou. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Honoring greatness in imagination and the magic that enthralls us all, it's time for the seven wonders of Walt Disney World. As promised, I am finally getting to the second of our seven wonders of Walt Disney World. And a while back, I said that I had been inspired by a piece that I saw on Good Morning America where where they were talking about the new seven wonders of the modern world. And it got me thinking about what the seven wonders of Walt Disney World would be. And I put that out there and I asked people to submit their suggestions and their ideas to come up with you know, what the consensus might be for this top seven would be. And uh, the first one that we did was Spaceship Earth, which was overwhelmingly one that was mentioned by so many people. And I apologize for the delay in getting to the second, but we are finally there. And I wanted to enlist the help of friend and voice guy, Jonathan Dichter, uh, to go through this segment with me. Jonathan, welcome again. Oh, you you wanted me to hang out for this too? No, I got to go. Okay, thanks for coming. And uh, his website is Voice of... No, I'm happy to be here. I love audio animatronics. And did I just spoil that? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you can tell, the second of our seven wonders. So let me just cross out all the stuff that I had to kind of lead into what this was going to be. And yes, the uh, the second. <laughs> Jonathan, thanks for coming back. Uh, this will be the last time. Anyway, the second of our seven wonders is yes, it's going to be audio animatronics. And uh, audio animatronics at Walt Disney World was, again, something that so many people had emailed me or posted on the message forums that they felt uh, deserved to be on the list. So, in my opinion, uh, I think audio animatronics are a wonder, not just because of the technological innovations and advancements, but really because of what an essential and integral part of Walt Disney World they really are. They're not merely fixtures or props, but they've become living characters that we've grown to know and love, and in some cases even revere, whether it be the simple children in It's a Small World, the redhead and the auctioneer in Pirates of the Caribbean, Big Al, There was... Blood on the saddle. As if on cue. (laughs) Or, dare I say, even Stitch. Um, You know, and the dad from Carousel of Progress. They're all really what helped make Walt Disney World such a truly magical place. And what began as a vision of Walt Disney 
And really a novelty with the Tiki Birds has evolved incredibly to what we have today. Uh, you know, we've got the, the oh-so-lifelike Captain Jack Sparrow. We've got the roving Lucky the Dinosaur and Mobile Muppet Labs. And of course, I'm not the only one who thinks that. Like I said, so many of you had called in, written in, and posted in the forums uh, about audio animatronics and why you think um, they belong on the list. Uh, Sam I am 717 says, I don't think Disneyland or Walt Disney World would nearly be as popular as they are today if it weren't for the use of audio animatronics. It's these very lifelike animated figures that give so many of Disney's greatest attractions their sparkle. Another reader wrote in and said, audio animatronics in the world like Hopper and the Tree of Life, the Yeti and Expedition Everest, or Pirates of the Caribbean. They're all very, very complex audio animatronics and really make Walt Disney World what it is today. Disney Darling wrote in and said, Walt Disney was the very first to use these entertaining robots in an amusement park, and their presence adds so much to every attraction. Even the earliest characters are startlingly lifelike. Like, the, think about the hairy leg in Pirates of the Caribbean, one of my daughter's favorites. <laughs> so... Um, I'm sorry. Those those are just you know representative examples of some of the things that I had received. When and I think that more than just adding a an entertainment element to the park, they they're almost what define the parks. I mean, as as we all know, one of the uh, keys about the way the parks are designed is that you're walking into a movie. You're walking into this this fictional world and becoming a character on stage. And if there weren't fantastic other characters to interact with. It wouldn't be that interesting. It would just be, you know, a movie about you know Jonathan walking around uh, in a park one day, and that's that's no fun. <laughs> but now, if it's Jonathan interacting with pirates or blue aliens or hitchhiking ghosts or whoever, uh, you know, then you've got something that's magical. All right, and that's and that's something that Walt Disney knew very early on. You know, it was really one of his early dreams to create these attractions that featured, like you said, all sorts of characters that didn't have to be humans. They didn't have to be cast members that would, you know, need to be dressed up and, of course, need to be fed and need breaks and insurance and union problems and things like that. And, in fact, when he was talking early on about developing Disneyland, he knew exactly what his vision was. And he really had the foresight of where he wanted animatronics to go. And I, and I really think his dream may finally have come true. He, he said, and I quote, I want to have a Chinese restaurant at the park. Out in the lobby will be an old Chinese fellow, much like Confucius. Not an actor, but a figure made out of plastic. Now the customers will ask him questions, and he'll reply with words of wisdom. We'll have an operator in back of the figure answering the questions and making the lips move. End quote. Now, to me, that sounds a lot like what we should be getting with Mr. Potato Head uh, in the coming year over at Toy Story Mania. Mm-hmm. Or, or even with the current incarnation of the, the Muppet Mobile Lab, or, or at least what I've heard about it, uh, something that's out there interacting with the guests that isn't a cast member. Exactly. Exactly. And we're going to touch more about that later, kind of where we are now and where maybe the future of animatronics is going. But I think, really, if we're going to talk about this as a wonder, we need to talk a little bit about the history of animatronics as well as some of the technology involved. And the way to start is obviously at the beginning because legend has it that the inspiration um, that Walt Disney had for these mechanical figures and the tiki birds came when Disney had purchased a pair of mechanical birds uh, when he was on a trip in Asia. He allegedly gave one of these birds to his wife and brought the other one to his Imagineers so that they can kind of, you know, 
rip it out, go through the guts, and see what made this thing literally tick. He said if uh, if his Imagineers can figure out how the bird worked, he could kind of, you know, re-Imagineer this and use it to create the characters that he wanted. Now, many of you are probably starting to type to me already because there is a second legend, and this is the one that I've heard more often, is that he had picked up this mechanical bird in an antique store in New Orleans in 1949, and that's what really he brought over to Imagineering and they kind of have them go through. And I remember, as part of the 100 Years of Magic celebration, I have to really try and see if I can find a picture. Um, if I remember correctly, John, I don't know if you were there, they had um, the bird or, or a facsimile of it on display um, that, that Walt Disney had brought over for his Imagineers to, to look at. Yeah, I, I wasn't actually there to see it, but I've seen pictures of it. And, you know, the, the original mechanical bird that inspired uh, the Tiki Room and then spawn you know ultimately stitch yeah, yeah, well <laughs> anyway uh well you know again i, I am you know we we mentioned stitch and we're going to talk about the present state of animatronics i don't criticize the stitch animatronic as i do this the stitch attraction and, and that's something i need to be clear on because the stitch animatronic and its movements are amazing and you can see that that is where and why they put so much of their budget into creating such such a, a unique figure yeah and I, and I actually completely agree and um if you promise not to tell the the listeners if we can keep this just between you and me um as much as i enjoyed alien encounter i i kind of like stitch's great escape Shh, don't no, don't tell anybody, okay? And I want to thank Jonathan for joining us once again. Um, it was Good really night, nice everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's quite all right. I, I don't mean to, to sound as, as you know critical as, as I am, but I just I was hoping for so much more. But again, another topic for another conversation. So <laughs> I, I'm going to try and give you a very very brief history and a very non AP physics kind of look at the technology of the figures, just because I want to show what the advancement is that I think. Uh, brought it to the point that it's it, uh, worthy of being one of the seven wonders. The the animatronics, like we said, originally were introduced and developed by Walt Disney and his staff at, at Imagineering, which it used to be known at the time as Wet Enterprises, um, back in the 1950s. And it seemingly overnight, Walt turned his animators into engineers. And how they started doing this, and if you've been to One Man's Dream, you know what I'm talking about, was the Dancing Man. And uh, the Dancing Man was basically this nine-inch figure that they had created. Uh, Walt Disney contacted his good friend Buddy Ebsen, and yes, I'm, that is Jeb Clampett from the Beverly Hillbillies. But for those of you who don't know, he was actually a very famous vaudeville performer. So they turned to him to kind of um, be the model for the miniature, and they also wanted him to demonstrate that kind of vaudeville dancing for the camera. And what, what this allowed Imagineering to do was... Uh, the machinists, you know, the machine shop people kind of viewed the action frame by frame. They want so they could animate this little figure with the same exact movements. And Roger Brogy had said they really would, would study him tap dancing against a grid up against the wall so they could kind of map exactly what was going on. And they saw that none of those movements were ever repeated. It was all unique kind of thing. So they went through it frame by frame. And no matter how many times they shot it, it was something unique. And from that and from what they were able to see they were able to build this figure 
and make him dance. Um, but it's important to know that the technology that they used to animate him was very, very primitive. And again, I highly recommend you go in and see Walt Disney One Man's Dream, not just for the full attraction, but so you can go and check out the Buddy Ebsen figure. And I'll see if I can put a picture of it up in the show notes for you. Um, the earliest models that they used for the animatronics used very, very simple mechanical devices, uh, cams and levers, and that's what they used to kind of make this nine-inch man move. But um, it had, you know, very, very strict limitations. They were difficult to cut, um, and certainly the movements at the time were not very lifelike um, at all. So they replaced this this cam and lever system and actually plussed it with a hydraulic and pneumatic system to try and create some simple uh, back and forth kind of motions, such as, uh, I'll use an example of like the animals on the Jungle Cruise. You'll see they are not typical or traditional audio animatronics, but they have that opening and closing of the mouths or that back and forth kind of movement. That was really kind of that first generation of, of audio animatronic figures. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. The, the animals on the Jungle Cruise are not actual animals? I'm sorry, what? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Far be it for Lou to spoil the magic for everybody. But uh, the second generation that the Imagineers came up with used an analog system to control the actions by means of magnetic recording tape and solenoid coils, and I'm not going to get overly geeky and try and explain what all it is, especially since I'm not really sure myself. No, I'm just kidding. Um, basically, they recorded signals on a tape, and this tape, when played back, would trigger these solenoid coils inside the figures, which would produce kind of an on-off kind of an, an action, an opening of the mouth and a closing of the mouth and a back and forth. And the first utilization of this technique is in the now infamous Tiki Birds. And, this, and they opened on June 23rd, 1963 uh, over at Disneyland. And that was kind of really the first real, you know, audio animatronic figure. And, and, and I think the technology, basic as it is, still works today. Let's all sing like the birdies sing. <laughs> tweet, 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 tweet. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Tip your waiters and waitresses. Try the veal. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but, um, you know, obviously what you have with the tiki birds and the technology they used back then, being able to take that to the next level, which, which obviously Walt Disney wanted to be a human, was much, much more difficult um, than expected. And really, at the time, there were two ways that Imagineers could program a figure. Um, and, and both of these techniques kind of utilized different methods to control the voltage regulation, and that's how they kind of made these, these movements happen. And the first was a joystick kind of device called a transducer, in which the movements were programmed literally one at a time. So every little movement require the recording of it using this joystick. You know, tedious to say the least. Um, the other method was created by Imagineer Walthall Rogers, who's really known as the father of audio animatronics technology, and he developed a control harness which would record his actions. And um, I'm sure you may have seen some of these videos of Imagineers wearing these harnesses, programming Carousel of Progress figures and programming Country Bear Jamboree figures. Um, they did this for the first of this kind of next generation of figures, which was Abraham Lincoln, created for, for the, the 1964 World's Fair. Exactly. He had 57 different moves, including 22 different head movements, all of which had to be acted out, you know, properly and in the correct sequence by the animator who had this giant harness um, hooked up. And again, it, this harness kind of, instead of using the joystick, 
each movement would kind of control those, you know, voltage regulations. But again, this was difficult too because Wathel tell I talk about him like I know him. <laughs> Wathel <laughs> Rogers tells these stories of you know people sitting in the harness for hours and hours upon end, trying not to move because everything that they did was being recorded, except for what they wanted um, the figure to do. But this obviously had you know, its advantages and disadvantages. One, you had to sit there still, but when you were doing these motions and you did want to move your head and your arms, it can be recorded all at the same time. Um, but obviously, there was so much rehearsal involved and so much, um, you know, so many times these things had to be, you know, retaken and reshot over and over again that it was difficult. Um, they even had developed the harness for the mouth movements. And, and Ken O'Brien was an imaginator who really was responsible for programming those you know those kind of things and creating this this thing that kind of was wired to the jaw basically oh, but i mean the the result of all that hard work is is totally undeniable i mean i i've heard stories of guests at the at the 64 world's fair who swore that they went up and shook hands with lincoln afterwards <laughs> and that he stepped down off the stage and talked to them and i mean they were just there were people that just thought it was a, a an abe lincoln impersonator and just had no idea this was mechanical, although one of my favorite stories about the Abe Lincoln uh, World's Fair animatronic uh, was, I guess, before the World's Fair opened, they were previewing this for some of the people from the uh, pavilion. And at the time, the hydraulic fluid they were using was a uh, red-colored hydraulic. <laughs> right. And in, in the middle of the show, they had a couple of hydraulic lines burst in Lincoln's chest. And all of a sudden, you just had red splotches sinking through his chest, and he just slumped down in the chair and kind of slumped over. And, of course, they all assumed that the, Disney had reenacted the, the Ford's theater assassination. <laughs> and, of course, he went to the Imagineers and said, okay, we need clear hydraulic fluid because this is no good. <laughs> and so, you know, necessity becomes the mother of invention yet again. <laughs> well, you know, it's a testament. You know, I'm happy you told that story the way you did because it's a testament to what Walt Disney's vision was and what the Imagineers were able to accomplish because they didn't just use, you know, the, the up and down, back and forth movements, individual movements that they use in, in the Tiki Birds and just threw it into a human figure. You know, they were able to, to advance technology so much that people at this time were convinced that what they were seeing was real. And it again, it goes back to so many layers of Imagineering. You know, it started really with uh, Mark Davis and people in the animation department who made the sketches based on the motions they wanted the figures to accomplish. And then those drawings were studied by the sculptors at the model shop, specifically Blaine Gibson, who was very, very much responsible for all the proportions and the head and the face and be able to create those sculpt, you know, the sculptures that could move and respond to what the animators wanted them to do. And then, of course, the machinists uh, and the mechanics at the machine shop who, you know, advanced the engineering so much to be able to design and construct and operate and record, you know, to make what these people had in their minds really come to life. Well, and the the realism, not to jump forward in time, but the, the realism wasn't only in question then. I mean, people who haven't necessarily seen animatronics before, for instance, um, a certain woman that I know who about a year ago went to Disney World for her honeymoon, but I'm not saying who that was, um, was forced by her horrible husband to sit through the Hall of Presidents, uh, after <laughs> which she asked, quite honestly, looked right at me and said, now, how many of those were animatronics and how many of those were real people? 
And I said, well, <laughs> all of them were animatronics and none of them were real people. And for about five minutes, I just couldn't convince her of that uh, because it's just that realistic. Well, see, I, I would only, you know, and I'm sure it would be great if the people that worked on these animatronics, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, that, that still are able to be so convincing 35 years later, I would love for them to be able to hear that and know that, and I'm sure they do, know that guests still feel the same way. Well, I'll email Marty Sklar and have him <laughs> send out to the, the crew. That way they know it'll be on the show and they'll all listen. <laughs> Well, you know, again, talking about the advancements uh, and the technology, really the next step in the evolution of the animatronics came a number of years later when, in 1969, Imagineers were finally able to use and integrate computers into recording the movements. And what they would do is basically record these movements no longer on these kind of magnetic tapes, but on computer disks. And they were controlled by the DAX system, and that's D-A-C-S, which stands for Digital Animation Control System. So no longer did they have to use the harness. They were actually able to program it using buttons and knobs. And again, you can see some of these uh, examples of this over at the One Man's Dream attraction. And they could insert, you know, actions and delete actions and kind of modify and edit instead of having to record it beginning to end with that harness. Um, and of course, obviously, the, the DAX system not only was able to control the actions and the movements of the animatronics, but they were able to cue, you know, audio elements and lighting and special effects and, and speakers. And if you've ever seen some of the specials on TV, um, on the, you know, for the Travel Channel, for example, or the History Channel, you'd be able to see some of that DAX control center in the Utilidors um, under the Magic Kingdom and how this giant room is able to control all these things throughout the entire park. And I think one of the, the most important things about the DAX system, in, in my opinion, though, is, is part of the name. It's the letter A, which is for animated. This, I think, is why the Disney and, and WED and later Imagineering ended up being so good at this, was because they weren't looking at these as robots. These were animated characters. Sure, they were three-dimensional animated characters, but they were animated characters just like Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse. And for years, they'd been bringing Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse to life. Why couldn't they do the same thing with a three-dimensional character? And so all the same elements that would go into a cartoon or a motion picture or a television program ended up going into the production of the, the AAs between, like you said, audio cues and voice actors and, and animators. And that's they, they weren't necessarily engineers or robotics people that were working on these were animators and they were animating these characters uh, which i think is very telling and again i agree with you and you know from a, a geek point of view the fact that they were able to control these things not only in the magic kingdom but over at epcot as well from one or two remote dax locations you know is uh it's still fascinating to me mm -hmm. and uh when you know speaking of epcot the first thing that comes to mind was the introduction of 1982 of what I consider to be really one of the best figures on property, and that's the, the quote-unquote walking Ben Franklin over at the Amer American Adventure. And I, I really have to ask, you know, if you go back and you see this again, or if you have a video of it that you can see online, really note very closely the movements of Ben Franklin. Watch his head, how it tilts. Watch his body, how it twists kind of back and forth. The, the fingers of his hand move. Um, his torso moves and then his mouth moves. There, there's really an incredible amount of programming and, and detail that goes into that. And hopefully it doesn't get lost sometimes in the scope and the breadth uh, of everything you see on stage. But, you know, there's in that in one scene, there's 40 separate 
movements you know of his mouth in one scene alone and obviously when he was built he was um at the time the most complex audio animatronics on property now not to to sort of spoil what may be coming later in the story was was ben franklin before or after the invention of the compliance circuits he was actually right before and nice segue jonathan to lou of the next step in technology, which was known as the A100 technology. And that was the incorporation of that compliance technology. Um, and that, you know, really made the movements so much more fluid and so much more realistic. Um, but here, here's a, a did you know, uh, because the programming, while it became more advanced, also became more, much more painstaking. And it, to program one of these figures, it takes about eight hours to animate just one second of movement in an A100 figure. That's roughly, my understanding, the same uh, time frame on the editing of a quality podcast. <laughs> you got to turn me on to one of those shows. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, do you know um, what the very first A100 figure was? Um, the auctioneer. I'm No, I'm sorry. <sighs> Darn. I don't. I uh, think late 80s. Think uh, new attraction, new theme park. Oh, uh, C-3PO. Getting closer. Getting, Getting closer. closer. Right theme park, wrong attraction, I'm guessing. Oh, the Wicked Witch of the West. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. The Wicked Witch debuted in 1989, and she was the very first of that A100 figure. And some of the other um, figures kind of on that technology level include the Carnotaur in uh, Dinosaur old Countdown to Extinction at Animal Kingdom, uh, Bill Clinton and George Bush in the Hall of Presidents. If you remember the old Sir and, and the new whoever he is. Uh, Tim Curry. Oh, uh. Loved it. Uh, the Timekeeper, which uh, again is sadly uh, now an extinct attraction. Robin Williams. That's right. And the most complex of the A100 generation figures is actually Hopper. And he's a nine-foot, four-armed grasshopper. That's right. He's got 68 different functions, and he appears, obviously, in It's Tough to Be a Bug, also at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And actually, if one of those A100 figures does go down, they will shut down the entire attraction. So if the auctioneer or if the Wicked Witch goes down, they will they will close down the attraction until they can get that problem solved. And, and yet, having seen all of those animatronics in action, I still find the Wicked Witch to be one of the most impressive. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's especially if you grew up watching The Wizard of Oz and were occasionally so frightened of that movie you had to bring a glass of water <laughs> with you uh, just so you'd have it to throw. Not that I know anyone who was like that, but um, <laughs> there's a lot of people that you've been mentioning that you just don't know. You know, the wife and the person with the glass. Of water. <laughs> but you know, I would ask you and other people next time you go to see It's Tough to Be a Bug. Pay attention to Hopper, because he's kind of ancillary because he's not part of the main film. But really, you know, having listened to this and knowing the technology behind it, take a close look at him and take a close look at his movements, how fluid they are and how, you know, how animated they are. I mean, almost as if it was like a computer generated kind of thing, because it's that it's that good. But, uh, you know. Even since since that time, since you know the first A100 figure, the evolution of audio animatronics has grown by leaps and bounds. And relatively speaking, you know Abraham Lincoln is is very basic compared to what we have today. You know we've gone from the the very basics of the enchanted tiki room's birds' mouths opening and closing and the wings kind of moving back and forth to this 
full body movement and uh you know from the mouth on ben franklin to you know the fingers on stitch on stitch's great escape and i and i use that as an example because the audio animatronic is that good you know and obviously one of the newest figures comes with you know into one of our classic attractions pirates of the caribbean where you know the jack sparrow figure is so lifelike and i've said this since the first time i've seen it you know life's like to the point that it's almost creepy I mean, that's how good it is. I mean, the face and the eyes are just incredible. And, and in fact, if you do, uh, if you do an internet search, I'm sure you can find there's a, a video floating around of uh, Johnny Depp's first ride on the Disneyland attraction after they reopened it. And at one point, they stop the boat, and he goes over to uh, the animatronic of himself and kind of interacts with it briefly, where he's just looking at it and, and you can tell he's a little spooked by it yeah. uh, it's it's it, it's definitely an eerie thing and, and having having seen it fairly recently it, it is it is an eerie animatronic it's it's almost too good um, I think the figure that you see hiding behind the dress um, in, in the town mm-hmm. dunking scene is just absolutely incredible it's and perfect. if you if you look closely and it, this is this is not to take away anything from the original animatronics but you really can see the gap in technology between Johnny Depp and the other animatronics even the auctioneer in that attraction Mm -hmm. absolutely and jumping backwards for a second uh, the the most impressive uh, leap in my opinion on the technology of the stitch animatronic was and and I know they turned out the Mm -hmm. lights so you wouldn't be able to see how they did it but getting him to actually jump from seat to seat and land on people's shoulders. Um, I mean, that's that's a huge leap forward in technology. That's that's just enormous. Well, speaking of, of enormous and, and leaps in technology, uh, you know, the Yeti over at Expedition Everest, you know, you, you see him only briefly, but he really um, takes the, the kind of non-movable animatronic to another level, um, you know, not only because of, of his size, but because of the technology behind it. You know, the force that, that's needed to make him move, um, no, actually the potential thrust to make all those moves, if all those hydraulic cylinders were combined, is slightly over 259,000 pounds of force, which is more than more power than a 747 jetliner. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing that amazes me, although I will have to admit I haven't yet ridden Expedition Everest, uh, we didn't get a chance to get to it uh, on our honeymoon, it wasn't open yet, um, but I've seen videos, uh, and the thing that gets me is not just how big it is and how fluid it is, but how fast it is. Yeah. I mean, for for a, a beast that size, and you imagine that a beast that size, it, in actuality, would have some speed and some power behind it. But the the animatronic moves so quick; it just re- you know reaches out and. It, it, I thought it was going to come right through the computer monitor. It's just <laughs> incredible. Well, that, that's part of the reasons why I think Everest you need to ride so many times, not just for the thrill factor, but because I think you should experience the queue. And really, you know, the first time you don't know where the Yeti is. You don't know when he's going to come out. And he, it's such a, a brief split second. You need, see, you know, you almost can miss him if you're not looking the right way. So the next time you go back on, you know when he's coming. Really try and get a close look at that hand that's coming down and, and looks like it's going to hit you right in the face or, or you know hit you right on the top of the head because you're right. It's not only fluid, but it's fast. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's just incredible to see. 
So I, I mean, I think, you know, we, we can all probably be in agreement that uh, for a variety of reasons and on so many levels, these animatronics do deserve to be on the list, you know, of, of a seven wonder of Walt Disney World. You know, there's more than probably, well, there's close to 2,000 animatronics figures throughout the park, um, all, you know, they're cl- controlled by this DAC system. I believe there's about 1,100 in the Magic Kingdom alone. And I, I think part of what qualifies these as well is that they are not, you know, that the technology is not stagnant. Stagnant. It's continuing to evolve. And right now, we are in the midst of that next level because what they're doing is something called a living character initiative. When Disney is not only trying to make these these characters talk to you, but allow you to interact, you know, guest animatronic interaction. And we see it. We saw it. You know, a very quick taste of it back in 2003, when uh, when Imagineers built Lucky, and he was a 20 foot long dinosaur that was not tethered to anything. He had this harness and a little cart that walked behind him, but he could walk around the park freely and he could smile and he could make noises and, and burp. And really was the first time he was kind of unleashed and kind of unbuckled from the floor and able to roam around. And he visited Animal Kingdom um, in 2005, I think, and then kind of toured some of the other theme parks around the world. And, you know, we haven't seen him since, but that was the kind of the first taste of what was was to come. Well, and I, I think the next generation were the uh, isn't it the the ducks in the moat around the castle. <laughs> well, those are free roving animatronics, right? Exactly, and, and you know, <laughs> like like those ducks. Um, <laughs> you know, although I haven't experienced it for myself, you knucklehead. Um, the uh, the Raz figure in uh, in Monsters Inc. Mike and Sully to the rescue. I have seen video, and she seems to interact with guests. She does. She's actually incredible. We were just in Disneyland in August, and uh, we rode Mike and Sully to the rescue, and she's fantastic. You, uh, It's just as you're coming out of the end of the ride, and it seems that she maybe has a bank of 20 to 35 things that she'll say that are appropriate for who's ever in your car. But clearly, it clearly somebody or, or some some form of technology is analyzing who's in the car she's looking at and talking to and she'll kind of give you a little wave and 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 send a a message your way you know from as little as you know you know like your hat buddy you know or just you know whatever <laughs> right um you know and it, similarly it reminds me of the uh the starfish at the end of uh, the seas with Nemo and friends, mm-hmm. kind of giving riders facts about the ride, but Roz seems to be actually interacting with you, which is kind of cool. Well, you know, I think choosing this right now is very timely because we've just been introduced to what really is probably the next generation, and that's the Muppet Mobile Labs over at Disney's California Adventure, and that debuted, you know, only about a week or two ago. And this is Maybe. really exactly <laughs> right, people. This is really, really cutting edge because. It's not only free roaming and it's not only interacting, but you know, you know, Beaker and, and Dr. Bunsen Honeydew act as though they can actually see the guests, and and there's no puppeteer in sight and there's no control booth in sight. Um, you know, they kind of had this kind of, um, and, and I'll put a link up to a YouTube video because there's lots of them out there. You see this kind of silver egg-shaped kind of moving laboratory, and it almost looks like it's propped up on. A uh, kind of a segue, almost a two-wheel thing, and there's flashing lights and spinning signs and water sprayers, but it's not a list of pre-programmed responses. It can see guests and it can respond to guests. And the real, you know, uber geeky bit of technology is that 
they can operate, Imagineers can operate these characters from as far away as the headquarters at Imagineering, which is about 35 miles north of the theme park. So the people who are actually controlling this guy and this, this animatronic don't even have to be in the park. And that really is uh, is quite an amazing you know feat as far as I'm concerned. Well, and I'm I'm pretty sure it's actually not controlled at Imagineering. I think it's controlled at Muppet Labs, where they're bringing the future of silliness to you today. <laughs> and, and you know I like it on a number of levels. I'm happy to see the Muppets coming back into the parks. I'd love to see Mobile Labs come over to the Disney MGM Studios. I think it would be a great addition. But uh, you know, technology-wise, interactivity-wise, it is just I, I think a brilliant piece of Imagineering and a, a great way to get guests to interact with these figures and I'm looking forward to seeing the Mr. Potato Head that we're supposed to get over at the studios at the entrance of Toy Story Mania because he's supposed to be able to do that to talk and react and interact well now let me ask you do you consider characters like Push the Trash Can and uh, the the tree outside Animal Kingdom whose name is escaping me West Palm West Palm, thank you, who, who actually said hello to me uh, when I was over there. Um, I mean, do you consider these to be in the same realm? Uh, you know, I don't. I, I don't and, that's, and that's not to take away anything from them. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, they're not characters. Um, you know, they, are, they do interact, but if you look very closely, you will find a very touristy-looking person talking into his hand or his cell phone and that's the person that's and again it's not to take anything away from it because I think it's great and I like to see people's reaction when a trash can starts talking to him and I think kids and adults love it but this evolution of animatronics what we're seeing in Muppet Mobile Labs and, and the, the possibilities that this allows um, and what I think we're going to see in the coming 5-10 years in the, in the parks is really really exciting for somebody that, that enjoys and appreciates these animatronics so much well, my understanding is is that they may be developing free-roaming uh, research guide animatronics, so you know people like Len Testa can just have <laughs> animatronics run the 30-minute the track, uh, and they don't need to, to have the research team anymore. I'm sorry, you said there was going to be an animatronic Len Testa at the park? Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, Len, I love you so much. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, you know, and again, we've seen, uh, we've seen animatronics come and go. We, we've seen them in such, you know, beloved attractions as Horizons and World of Motion. And, and really, I hope I was able to give you a little taste of not only the technology, but why I and I think so many other of the listeners feel that it belongs on the list. Um, I would love to hear your reactions. Let me know what you think. Um, you can talk about this on the forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. We do have a WDW radio section of the forums there where you can talk about the Seven Wonders, weigh in, let me know what you think. Or if you want to call the voicemail, you can call 206-202-4WDW or just shoot me out an email at Lou at WDWRadio.com. And again, if you have an idea for what you think belongs on this list, what you feel is truly a wonder of Walt Disney World, whether it's a technological marvel, uh, something that you feel is just magical, it could be an attraction, it could be really almost anything, go ahead and plead your case, because the uh, the list is not complete, and, uh, and I will still be taking submissions and ideas, and I will continue this segment until we get all of these out there and, and can talk about them. Jonathan Dichter, the voice I, of actually, WWE Radio, has I something else just, to say. <laughs> I, had a fa- well, no, I had a fantastic animatronic idea just now. I was thinking about an animatronic uh, unofficial guide researcher, and I thought we could adapt that technology and 
in the unlikely event that neither you or I managed to reach our goals, we could create animatronic half marathon runners. <laughs> well, based how, on how my uh, training has been going lately, I may actually need. I made an animatronic to carry me over to the finish line. Perfect. <laughs> we'll, we'll put you on Lucky's cart exactly. and just off you go. <laughs> A little IV drip, and I'll be all ready to go. So. <laughs> But, uh, well, no, it was my pleasure to be here, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about the Seven Wonders. My next wonder is, I wonder how I'm going to afford my trip down from Mousefest. <laughs> well, we will, we will try and figure that out uh, along the way. But Jonathan, <laughs> thank you again. Don't forget to go visit Jonathan's website. It is voiceofmousetunes.blogspot.com. And again, Jonathan, thanks for all your great voiceover work here on the show. Ah, no problem. Like I said, you keep playing them, I'll keep recording them, and eventually I am going to record that Stitch's Great Escape intro with you as Stitch, so that's that's coming. <laughs> you just gotta wait for it. Yikes. <laughs> and with that, thank you very much. I want to thank everybody for all the support you've shown via posts on the internet as well as all the emails and voicemails that you sent. As I said on last week, I promise to get to everything that you email uh, and call in. If I don't do it on the show, I'll definitely do it via email. But uh, I did want to take a little bit of time, again, this time with the help of Jonathan Dichter and try and get through a few of your emails. Jonathan, welcome back. Ah, Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And the first email comes from Richard Page, who says, I have a couple of questions for the show. We're coming over in October for our third visit. This time we're staying on property, good choice, and we'll be able to visit downtown Disney for the first time. My first question is, our daughter will be nine when we visit, and I was wondering if it's okay to take her to the Adventurers Club, Congaloosh. Also, sorry, I've heard a lot about <laughs> Disney Quest. We have this in our ticket purchase. So my second question is, do you have to pay for the games inside Disney Quest Cheers. Well, Richard, thank you for the question, and uh, I'll kind of take these one at a time. As First, as far as the Adventures Club, uh, you can take your daughter, even if she's nine. Children under the age of 18 can go into the club, however, they must be obviously accompanied by an adult at all times, uh, anytime really on Pleasure Island after 7 p.m. My only caveat to that is this, is that the Adventures Club... Uh, the, the humor in there can be PG-13 sometimes. Um, it is really meant for adults. Um, there's nothing that, that's, you know, blue in there and there's no cursing, things like that. But, you know, it, it is a club that serves alcohol and sometimes the, the jokes might be inappropriate for a nine-year-old. That, that's a judgment call that, that really you have to make. And you got nothing. Okay. Oh, well, I've, <laughs> I've, I've never actually been to the Adventures Club. Okay, so we'll move on to Disney Quest. <laughs> Um, Disney Quest, again, located in downtown Disney. Your admission does include unlimited use of all the attractions inside, except for just a few things. Um, there are some kind of, um, you know, carnival-style games where you can win prizes like, uh, you know, plushes and DVDs and things like that. Those you actually have to pay for. And you can also buy items that you create in, uh, in the Create Zone area. Um, that's where there's the magic mirror, the living easels, create a toy, where you can kind of go in, you can play with these attractions. You don't have to buy it, but if you want to buy what you create, for example, in Sid's Creator Tour, when you, when you can kind of put this kind of mashup um, figure together, you can buy it on the way out. Um, with stuff that you do at the Animation Academy, you can buy as well. But otherwise, everything in Disney Quest is free. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to go into Disney Quest, but 
downtown Disney is actually the the marketplace area has some stores that are almost attractions in and of themselves that I I would recommend for somebody a nine year old girl especially uh, you know check out uh, Once Upon a Toy uh, if she's into pins they've got a great pin trading station um, and if she's into artwork and Disney art and the the movies and things make sure you go into the Art of Disney store more often than not there's an animator who's actually there doing pencil sketches that they then sell for fifteen twenty dollars each pencil sketch but you can actually watch them draw and you can talk to them they're very friendly uh, and they can kind of tell you how they're drawing stuff and if if she ever you know doodles or uh, colors or anything like that or even is into drawing that that would be a big a big kick uh, and yeah the Lego not, store the Lego store the too. Lego store oh yeah and and if she's into princesses depending on you know what what's in the budget don't forget to check out the bibbity bobbity boutique because that that's right over there and that could be a, a huge you make huge points with uh, with a young girl for taking her over there i was just say i hope richard's daughter's not listening because you know now you've just locked him into the bibbity bobbity boutique so <laughs> um richard I'm, I'm very sorry if you have any complaints please send them directly to lou yeah <laughs> <laughs> well you know what there, listen there's there's plenty to do inside a Disney quest and we could talk for a long time about it there's Cyberspace Mountain a couple of my favorites are the Virtual Jungle Cruise Aladdin's Magic Carpet Ride uh, the Mighty Ducks Pinball Slam is very cool and obviously one of the biggest attractions there is Pirates of the Caribbean Battle for Buccaneer Gold where you can all as a family kind of get in kind of steer your pirate ship and, and you know man the cannons and go through virtual waterfalls and capture gold it's a lot of fun um, and it's definitely a good kind of family experience together and won't cost you as much as the bibbidi Bobbidi boutique oh let's see the next email says lou love the new show very happy you decided to keep this going i had a strange question for you in mission space just as you're about to split up into the different mission rooms there's a control room off to the right what exactly is that room for I noticed the cast members aren't always in there, so I don't think it's a ride control room, but sometimes they're in there just chatting. Hope you can help. Thanks a bunch, Justin from Lancaster. Well, Justin, you're right. Um, as you, as Just as you're about to enter into the four different centrifuge areas, there is a room off to your right, and it looks like a control room, and every now and then you will see cast members in there. Well, on that, that their side of the glass, they're actually monitors and things like that where they can look in into different areas of the attraction in, in the show building itself. It, it isn't a control room, so they don't need to be in there all the time. But one of the things I like about that are some of the little, little details. And if you remember Mission to Mars and that, that poor bird that got stuck every time and caused the alarm <laughs> to go off, there's a small video screen where you can see this, the actual video of that bird that used to kind of get tangled up and set the alarms off. Kind of a little tribute to the old Mission to Mars attraction in the Magic Kingdom. These space-grown crystals are so pure that they're going to bring revolutionary advances in electronics, which will benefit every one of us. In fact, they're so... Attention! Clear all channels for possible emergency re-entry. Oh, no, not again. Stand by. Video signal coming in on all channels. Just as I thought. Somehow, this silly bird trips the emergency system every time he comes in. And I think he knows the life's on us. You know, I, I, I want to thank you, Lou, for, for handpicking these particular emails. Thus far, we've discussed the Adventurous Club, which I've never been at, Disney <laughs> Quest, which I was not inside, and Mission Space, which was the only ride in Epcot we didn't do. Let us move on to our next question. 
Hey Lou, love the books and the show. My wife got, gave me an iPod for Christmas, and I love listening to your show while I'm on the road. Keep I up do the great know work. about iPods. There you go. So you you're good so far. All right, so far so good. My family, myself and wife, plus two boys, age seven and nine, will be returning to Walt Disney World this June for our fourth visit. The other three times we stayed at Wilderness Lodge, and this time we're opting for Port Orleans Riverside, likely the Alligator Bayou section. I read a lot of positive comments about the resort and was just curious to get your take on it. We plan to continue to go to Walt Disney World over the next several years and want to stay in different resorts to experience more of the magic and save some money, moderate versus deluxe. What do you think about Riverside and what's your favorite resort and why? Thanks, John Strickland. Now, I am a huge fan of the Port Orleans uh, resorts, both French Quarter and Riverside. And I think there, there's pros and cons to both. I like French Quarter a little bit more because it's smaller. Um, it's a little more intimate. There's nicer theming, um, I, I think, in there, depending on what you're looking for. And I like the fact that it's a little more compact. I love Building 5, in case you have to go, because you're right near the, the pool. But the downside to French Quarter, that Riverside actually has is that there is no table service restaurant there's only counter service and i think that is a a big detractor of it for a lot of people now riverside is a little bit more spread out however i think the feel of the resort is beautiful it's very lush i think the sit down restaurant is key there boat rights dining hall is very very good they have nice breakfast they have nice dinner Um, they have a bar there they usually have a singer and stuff at night so there's stuff to do in and around the resort at night. And actually, this ties into another email that I had received, which has to do with Port Orleans Riverside. So I'm kind of throwing it in here. It says, Lou, I'm interested in knowing more about the Butterfly House at Port Orleans Riverside. I can't find it on a map. How big is it? When is it open? Is it free? And what's the closest hotel room to the house? I want to reserve the closest room I can get. Thanks so much. And that comes from Jack. Well, there is actually a little butterfly house, and it's free, and it's located behind the Acadian house on Port Orleans Riverside. And I'll put a map up in the show notes so you know where I'm talking about. And uh, if you ask for that building when you book, they will do their best to try and get you in there. Uh, But yeah, there is this little butterfly house where you can see butterflies, and that's one of the little hidden treasures of of this resort. Uh, I I understand they're some of the most realistic animatronic butterflies you've ever seen. <laughs> they're incredible. And with wingspans from 12 inches, no, I can't do it. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think you'll be very happy. I think as far as the moderates go, I think Port Orleans, in my opinion, is the best of the bunch. Um, I really, really enjoy staying at both Riverside and French Quarter, um, along with, and much like you, much like Wilderness Lodge, it, they're one of my favorite resorts on property and uh, far and away, I think, the best of the moderates. When, and to answer, I think, John's second question for me, I, I would have to say, although I've stayed at the Polynesian, I've stayed at Caribbean Beach, uh, I believe my family stayed at the Contemporary, but I was far too young to remember, and then I stayed at Wilderness Lodge uh, in uh, March for my, my honeymoon, last March, 06, uh, I would have to say Wilderness Lodge is easily my favorite of the ones I remember. Um, although we, we kind of, we did it upright. We stayed up on the concierge level, had access to the, the concierge lounge. Yeah. Again, I could go, you know, into a long discussion, surprise, surprise of what my favorite resort is, because I think there's, there's different reasons why certain resorts would be my favorite. I love Wilderness Lodge. I think the theming is some of the best on property. I also like, uh, the beach club for both location as well as the pool, things like that. Um, I, I really enjoy Pop Center. I'm sorry, Scopa Towers. I think it's a great resort. Uh, I think it's a cut above the other value resorts, uh, and I think it's a lot of fun for both parents and kids. But um, if I had to pick one, 
uh, Wilderness Lodge is up there, and, and the Polynesian is up there, especially from what I hear about the new updated rooms. But anyway, let us move on to another question, because we have so many to try and get through. I'm trying to go as fast as I can, I promise. Lou, just wanted to let you know some sad news. Uh-oh, you probably already Aww. know, since you just went to the Magic Kingdom, but just in case you missed it, do you remember when you walked into the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, there was a parrot that said stuff like, Salty old pirates? Well, due to the renovation, he was removed. I really miss him, because every time before the movie, I'd go to Disney, and there'd never be a line for the ride, so I'd go... I'd never get to really hear everything that he said. I was wondering if you have a recording of him, and if you do, can you send it to me or play it? Thanks, Anthony. Anthony, I miss Peg-Legged Pete. I I miss his spiel. And ask and ye shall receive. Here you go. Here's a clip of Peg-Legged Pete. Yo ho, yo ho, a parrot's life for me. A parrot's life for me. A parrot's life for me. Golden doubloons, golden doubloons. Heave to, mateys. You come seek an adventure in salty old pirates, eh? <whistles> salty old pirates, salty old pirates, this be the place, this be the place. <whistles> Chart a course through the arches, mateys. It be a short march through the old fortress, past the dungeons to Pirates Cove. <whistles> pirates Cove, Pirates Cove, there be longboats waiting to take you aboard. <whistles> All hands on deck. We sail with the tide, sail with the tide. Ahoy, you swabbies! Stand by to repel borders! Repel borders, repel borders. Ah! Don't miss the boat, mateys! The next email comes from Craig, also known as the Rocketeer, who says, Solu, what's the truth behind the various rumors I've read about a thrill ride going in north of the Animal Kingdom somewhere? Is that a driving factor in the western development of the resort? Yikes! Are we losing the magic that separates Walt Disney World from all those other parks, Disneyland included? Well, Craig, this is something um, that we've talked about, and there's been a lot of speculation about, especially with the announcement of the Western Development Project. You know, is this going to lead to a fifth gate? Is this built in lieu of a fifth gate? I doubt, um, at least for many, many years to come, that a fifth park is going to be built for a variety of reasons. And first, if there was one to be built, I don't think it would be a thrill park. Uh, I don't think the villain's you know, roller coaster, you know, very thrill ride specific theme park is ever going to get built because I think it goes against the very principles uh, of what Walt wanted to do and, and why he built Disneyland because he wanted a place that he could take his daughters and, and take his family and all of them enjoy something together. And now if you start bring in a villains, you know, a or a, a thrill ride specific theme park, you are now really alienating a, a large portion of the people that either A, are not into them or don't want to ride them or can't ride them um, for, for one reason or another. So I don't think that's going to take place. Uh, you know, however, you should be aware there is a lot of room for development. Um, so I don't think that the Western Development Project is built in lieu of a fifth park because there's plenty of room out there. Um, as of right now, only about a quarter of the property has been developed with another quarter designated as a, as a wilderness preserve. So I think it's it shows that Disney is is committed to enhancing what they have now, and I think this this does serve as an enhancement to the Animal Kingdom Lodge and the resorts in that area. Uh, I think they're really going to continue to focus on their existing parks before they build a new one. And uh, you know, I, I know some people had had said to me via email that they were concerned that the building 
of these new rooms, you know, in the Western development and the Four Seasons was going to lead to more crowding in the theme parks. And I don't necessarily think that that's true. You know, more rooms doesn't necessarily mean more people because if you follow that logic, it would mean that right now every room is filled to capacity every day and that now these other people who can't get down there and stay on property will have a place to go. Uh, I just, I don't think that's the case. I th- just think it affords people another option both on the higher end, if they are looking for something a little more luxurious, and on the lower end, if they are trying to save money but still want to stay on Disney property. And speaking to the uh, thrill park idea, in addition to sort of going against Walt's vision, I think looking at it as a, as a corporate a corporation would, it's a bad business move because it's not what they're known for. And if you look at some of the ad campaigns that have come out from competitors in recent years. Um, there's some other park in the Orlando area that uh, had not put out. With it, sorry. Yeah, they they had some ad campaigns about a year and a half ago where they were really really struggling, and the whole thrust of their ad campaign was a bunch of little kids basically saying they were too old for or too cool for or if I have to hug another princess I'm gonna hurl, um, and. That particular park, my understanding, is continuing to flounder and getting worse and worse and worse while Disney's park revenues and park attendance are going up and up and up. What they're known for and what they're good at is creating family-style magic and telling a story from the minute you walk into the park. And a villains-themed roller coaster park isn't going to do that. It's, it's not what they know how to do. I'm not saying that it wouldn't be cool if they did it. It wouldn't. I'm sure it would be fantastic. It would be the best villains-themed roller coaster park in the world. But it's not a Disney park. It, it's not. It, it doesn't fit their their corporate scheme, in in my opinion. And I think they'd be doing themselves a disservice. I, like I said, I don't think it's going to happen. I, I think you know the discussion about the villains-themed area and the villains-themed land is something that I touched on in the past, which is possibly a villains-themed. Uh, attraction in the back end of Fantasyland to kind of tie Pinocchio's Village House to Mickey's Toontown Fair, replacing what's there now, obviously, you know, Pooh's Playful Spot. And there's a lot of room back there for them to do it. I think something like that would work because that would tie in very, very nicely to the land. But uh, again... What's interesting about that idea is uh, if you ordered any of the commemorative maps that you were able to get made on the Disney website. Uh, we, we got those. Uh, it no, The map no longer refers to Pooh's Playful Spot as Pooh's Playful Spot. It calls it the Fantasyland Play Area, which says to me it, it might at least be on the drawing board for being in transition. Interesting. I, I ordered the maps too, and I didn't look at it that closely. That That's, that's very interesting. Yeah, again, I don't think um, I don't think we're going to see a fifth park at least for a while, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I think Animal Kingdom could, you know, be very well served by some expansion. Uh, I, I think, and again, we've touched on this in the past. I think the area that was originally maybe designated for Beastly Kingdom could be expanded on. I think Camp Mini Mickey, uh, which is right now sort of a placeholder, can also be broadened um, to, to add a lot more. So uh, both. You know that park as well as MGM, you know, which which can definitely get some more traction to it. It's nice to see them funneling the money into those parks and making those better. So, um, but again, this is something that people feel very very strongly about, one way or the other. And I would definitely like you to weigh in one way or the other. Please send me emails to Lou at wdwradio.com. Call in your voicemails two zero six two zero two four WDW or post on the message forums at disneyworldtribute.com. We have a WDW Radio forum there. Go ahead and weigh in and let us know what you think. So 
I unfortunately did not get to as many emails as I had hoped to on this show. I am trying to keep the shows at somewhat of a reasonable length. Jonathan, I want to thank you for joining me once again. Your website is... Uh, voiceofmousetunes.blogspot.com Well, definitely go and check it out. And Jonathan, you know I really am... Uh, I am happy for what you're doing. I am proud of you for what you're doing, and I support your efforts wholeheartedly. Go over, show Jonathan your support, um, whether it's in sponsoring his efforts or just giving him a, uh, a little bit of encouragement on his quest for uh, a better life for himself and for the people he's trying to help through the Dream Team Project. John, thank you again also for all that you do. We love uh, all the voices and all the intros you do on the show. The request I'd make is if, if anybody does actually go to the blog that hasn't been there before, just leave a comment. Let me know you were there so that I know people are actually reading this. Because um, I just kind of want to know who's there because it, it helps keep me going. So it's I, I really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. So. Well, I will definitely uh, put a link up in the show notes to the blog. And if you have any requests for Jonathan for his intros, I know he loves doing them. So go by all means, go ahead and send them to me and I'll forward them along to Jonathan. Good uh, night, everybody. Thanks, John. <laughs> I mentioned at the top of the show having some updates and news about the Trivia Cruise this fall. For those of you that may not be familiar with what I'm talking about, this November, from the 3rd through the 10th, 2007, I and Margaret Tinkerbell Carey, yes, that's the same Tinkerbell you just saw on your new Peter Pan Special Edition DVD, will be going on a week-long voyage aboard the Disney Magic for trivia and fun on the high seas. And I want you to come and join us. We're going to have lots of special VIP events contest, other surprises, as well as special invitation-only events for guests that book as part of the group, including high tea with Tinkerbell, exclusive Pirates of the Caribbean-themed events, trivia games, book signings, contests, private dinners, Peter Pan-themed events, castaway key parties, treasure hunts, and so, so much more. We're also going to do live podcasting from the ship, where you can come and help and be a part of the show, do some charity fundraising events to benefit the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team and the Starlight Children's Foundation, and everybody who books as part of our group will get plenty of special pixie-dusted items in the cabins. One of the things I'm really happy to finally be able to announce is that at many of these events, you'll be able to participate and have a chance to win a key, either if you win a trivia contest, win the pirate costume contest, just participate, or whatever. And at the end of the cruise, one of your keys, and you can win more than one, could open a huge treasure chest filled with incredible Disney surprises and merchandise. And everybody who books as part of the group is eligible to win and participate. Of course, we have plenty of things planned just for the kids. For example, I can let you in on a little secret, and that for kids under 10, they're all going to get a special piece of a huge treasure map in their room signed by Captain Jack Sparrow. All these kids will get their puzzle pieces, they can all get together, put together this huge treasure map, and score some very cool pirate booty. But if that wasn't enough, here's really the big Tortuga. Everyone who books on this cruise as part of our group by June 1st, 2007, will receive a very unique special surprise before the cruise starts. And during a wonderful private event that we have planned as we set sail, we're going to have a very, very special, very fun-filled drawing where one person will win a $500 Disney gift card that you can use on board. And of course, don't worry, if you've already booked on the cruise, you will also receive the surprise and be eligible to win, so no worries there. 
Again, it is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be visiting Key West, Grand Cayman, Cozumel, and of course, Castaway Key. Margaret Tinkerbell Carey is on there. And if you've ever seen her, she is a wonderful woman with incredible stories about working on Peter Pan and so much more, so many more details that I just can't share right now. But I tell you, it is going to be a great time. Staterooms are limited. They are booking up fast. We have, I think, close to 200 people in the group so far. So there's going to be a lot to do and a lot of fun. And I'm going to share more details as time goes on. Again, for more information and for a no-obligation quote, you can go to DisneyWorldTrivia.com slash cruise. And for those of you up in New Jersey, don't forget too, this is Teacher's Week, so the kids are off. No worries there. I really hope to have even more listeners join us on board. If you have any questions, feel free to email me directly at lou at wdwradio.com. So I hope to see you on board the Disney Magic from November 3rd through the 10th, 2007, for trivia and fun on the high seas. Matey. Well, it looks like we are out of time, so that is going to do it for this episode of the WDW Radio Show. Thanks for tuning in once again. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. I want to thank my special guests, Jonathan Dichter and Jeff Pepper, for their help in our different segments. Hope you enjoyed what we were able to bring you with those. I do want to bring your attention over to two other friends of the show, as well as their fundraising efforts. Deb Wills, as you know, owner of AllEarsNet.com. She is a 20-year-plus breast cancer survivor, and every year she undertakes an incredible effort to raise funds and awareness about that disease. And for the eighth year in a row, she is committed to participating in the Avon Walk for Breast Cancer. I'm going to ask you to go and check out our show notes page. I will have a link to Deb's website over at AvonFoundation.org. Please go and help support Deb as well as all of her efforts as they fight against that dreaded disease. Another friend of the show, Mark Goldhaber from MousePlanet.com, is spending his birthday this year to raise money for the March of Dimes again. Last year, they were able to raise about $2,500 in just four weeks, and this year he is hoping to beat that and possibly raise even $4,000. He's starting much early this year, so he thinks we can. I know I support Mark and all of his efforts. I will put a link up in the show notes to his website as well. Speaking of fundraising efforts for charities, I ask you to support our efforts over at the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team Project. We're going to talk some more about what we're going to be doing for that at the Magic Meets event this summer. We have an auction much like we did last year, and we have lots of special surprises in store for that as well. Please go and check out some other friends of the show. Check out Nathan and Tim's podcast over at MagicalDefinition.com. Go check out the Mouse Kingdom blog, the Mouse Lounge podcast with Gary Chambers, WDW Today, especially Matt Hotchberg, who I forgot to mention like I figured I would on last week's show. You know, he's really the glue that holds that show together. He's, he's funny. He's brilliant. He's witty. I'm sure many women consider him quite a handsome fellow. And I think I've sucked up quite enough and make up for forgetting to mention on him last week. So also check out Paul Barry's Window to the Magic, Greg and Mike over at MiceCast. Don't forget to vote for Ricky Briganti for his dream job as a Haunted Mansion butler over at distantcreations.com slash inside the magic. And say hello to Clinton over at the comedyforecast.com. He's got a non-Disney podcast that's actually a lot of fun. You should go and check it out. And if you're looking for a new, wonderful, and unique set of guidebooks to Walt Disney World, one of my personal favorites is Tim Foster's Guide to the Magic series. That's over at GuideToTheMagic.com. He's got a Guide to the Magic, The Lost Journals, 
the Guide to the Magic autograph and sticker book, and so, so much more. Go ahead and check that out again. That's GuideToTheMagic.com. Don't forget that if you are planning a Disney vacation to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, or on the Disney Cruise Line, please head over and visit themagicforlesstravel.com. Their commitment to exceptional guest service is really above and beyond the norm, and it's what you'd come to expect when you're planning a Disney vacation. Their service, remember, is 100% completely free to you. They offer daily discount checking services, special packages and rates, as well as exclusive gifts with qualifying bookings. They are very passionate about what they do, and it shows in the level of service they provide. I will put a link up to that in the show notes page. And speaking of which, don't forget that after the show's over, go ahead and check out our show notes page at wdwradio.com. There, I'm always going to have relevant links to the topics we discussed, websites of my special guests, additional photos and images, much, much more additional information to really supplement the content of the actual show. I also invite you to come and join our free online community at DisneyWorldTrivia.com, where we have a special section set up just to discuss anything you hear or want to hear on the WDW radio show. Everyone is welcome. It's fun. It's free. It's easy to join. And I promise you, we have a very warm, very friendly and welcoming community and are truly home to the happiest forums on Earth. On upcoming shows, we have plenty more additional segments, interviews, special guests, as well as a couple of special treats that I have planned for next week that I just was not able to include on this week's show. Don't forget that you can be part of the WDW Radio Show by contributing. Send me an email to lou at wdwradio.com or leave a voicemail anytime at 206 202 for WDW, and by all means, please come and participate in the discussions over at the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Many of you continue to ask how you can help. Well, in addition to the ways I just mentioned, please help spread the word. Let other people know about the show, either on other communities, websites, reviewing the show on iTunes, or by clicking the dig button on the WDW Radio homepage. Of course, Remember, let me know what you like and what you don't like since this show is for you. We have lots more coming up next week and on upcoming shows, so please stay tuned. Thank you once again for coming back, tuning in, and listening to the show. I really do appreciate it, and I hope that you enjoy what we're doing here. So I hope to see you next week. See ya! See ya!